and I'm. You can hear me okay. The yeah, yeah. microphone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, great. All right, fine. Okay. And now coming to you live from the Gershwin Room, high above the Crude Street Motel Six. It's John Hussrad, Gary K. Wolf on the Crude Street Podcast. And it's about time we got back just chatting the two of us. We've been talking to these science fiction writers and fantasy writers, and I've had it with them. Forget I just them want to all. Talk to Forget them all. Yeah, They're all just there to them. promote their books and suck the life out of you. Absolutely. Hi, everybody. Hi. Well, <laughs> welcome to the well, so it's uh, welcome to the last episode of the Crude Street Podcast. <laughs> but starting next week, we talk about mystery novels and romances, <laughs> and of course the history of the construction of the yo-yo. Sure to go down well with our audience of four. There is probably you're, you're making a joke, but there probably is a yo-yo podcast out there somewhere, and someone is going to email us and tell us that we've missed the yo-yo podcast, no. and we clearly don't know what we're doing. It's Which, not, by the way, we don't. That's true. It's not just that you know there's a yo-yo podcast out there. It's that we have horribly offended everybody who loves yo-yos. <sighs> you can't win. You can't win in this world. It's, no, no. Um, you, Gary, all you do is you just lose gracefully. That's all. It's all right. I have no – that's, that's – that you just described my career. Uh, I have no problem with that whatsoever. I feel like I've been losing gracefully this year because I, I can't read, Gary. I've read, like, two novels all year. It's terrible. And and I can't criticize any of the books that I've not finished or anything because it's me, not them. It's like I'm, I'm two chapters into Cameron Hurley's book, right? The Stars Are something? Legion. The Stars Are Legion, right? The Stars Are Legion. And everybody says it's great. And there's a reader's group here in town about it next uh, tomorrow, in fact. And I just, it just hasn't grasped me yet, you know? It's me, not it. Well, one of the, I'm, I'm sort of glad to hear you say that because you, uh, along with our friend Liza Trombi at Locus, basically say to me repeatedly, it doesn't make any difference whether you like it or not. You have to get something in for the column next month. And and, and what, what grips grip you is not necessarily what's supposed to grip you during a given month. I, I, since you mentioned your difficulty in getting into a particular novel, I'll give you uh, an, an example from uh, from my end, uh, a novel which I actually ended up enjoying a lot and which I thought was uh, brilliant and original, original and innovative uh, was the um, what was born, the Jeff Vandermeer novel. It's, it's really good. I had a while getting into it. Uh, there's a thing about a giant flying bear that makes me frankly want to giggle. Um, and I got – getting through it was not a problem. But had I not had a deadline, I would have set it aside and come back a couple of weeks later. On the other hand, a uh, book I'm reading now not coming out until September, and I thought I'll take a look at the first couple of pages just to see how it's going, is Kid Johnson's sequel to The Wind in the Willows, uh, The Riverbank. I, I, I barely remember The Wind in the Willows. I mean I know the, I know the business about Mr. Toad. I'm, I I have not read it probably since I was a kid, and so I ended ended up just about finishing the novel because it grabbed me in some way. It doesn't mean it's a better novel than other novels. It simply means that when you read what you read, makes a difference. Of course it does, and of course neither you nor I have a remotely natural approach to reading anymore in our lives. Uh, for most of our listeners, you know, they go off, they pick up a book that's piqued their interest. 
they read it, depending on their commitment. I mean, once upon in my life, you know, once upon a time, if I read a novel or if I started a novel, I finished the novel. Then I got to the stage where I could start the novel and then not finish the novel. Uh, for our readers, it's whatever their variation on that is. You know, and maybe they listen to you and I talking about books or somebody else. We say, we read this book, say New York 2140, the Stan Robinson book. We recommend it. They go off, they read it for pleasure. They're interested. It goes on their stack of reading beside the bed. Um, in your case, of course, you've got, you've got to get at least four books a month read and written about. Um, I'm, I've got a plethora of short fiction in the background and I want to read the novels too. I mean, I'm kind of chafing, you know, and I look around and I mean, I have some great books to read. It's not that it were what look to be great books, ones that you've, you've uh, talked up, ones that I'm interested in anyway. I have Ian McDonald's Lunar Wolf Moon that I've not read yet, which I'm very eager to read. I have John Kessel's book. This Cam Hurley's. Uh, I've not read any of the current Nora Jemison trilogy, which I want to. Uh, there's Yoon Ha Lee's books, you know. Mm-hmm. Oh, and, and I, I feel the same way about books that, for whatever reason, I don't get for review. I mean, I eventually, actually, the Yoon Ha Lee novel I got with the uh, Hugo packet, uh, and I started reading that on the plane, and, and it's I'm really impressed in a way I didn't think I would be. There's some elliptical qualities to his short fiction, uh, which are underplayed in the novel because it's a really, really hard SF military adventure that's really well done, uh, which is not what I expected it would be. And I'd, had I, uh, for whatever reason, I, I we, we don't go into locust review policies and who reviews what for what reason, but that's something I, I found myself drawn into much more readily than other novels, which which I know. The, the, the difference with being a reviewer uh, with a deadline and, and X number of books per month, as you say, is that you have much less freedom to get five, 125 pages in and say, I'll, I'll put this on my stack because then you've got to start another novel and, and do it the other way. What I still like and what I still surprise myself with, and the Kids Johnson is one of these, is picking up a book where I think – uh, it's worth browsing through, but I'm, it's way too much to read for the column. And the column, which I think I sent in to you uh, this month, was exactly a book like that. I got a book, and I don't even know who sent it to me, because one of the things that happens sometimes when you review, you get things from a press, you get things from an author, you get things from Locus. And I started browsing through the journals of Samuel R. Delaney. And I thought, I... I have always admired his fiction. I like Chip Delaney. This starts out when he's 15 years old. It's going to have way too much stuff in it that isn't really about the science fiction or the fiction or the art of fiction and so forth, which it did. Uh, it's, it's a lot of stuff. Of, and it was utterly captivating, the whole thing. Um, uh, and it's, these are not journals that he wrote to be published, although one of the things that's very apparent when Delaney was a teenager is that he pretty – had a pretty clear idea of, of how precocious he was. <laughs> so he may have, even at, at 16 or 17, he may have been thinking in the back of his mind at least, these may be published someday. I wouldn't rule it out. I wouldn't rule it out at all. At least. Uh, what I was going to say actually about something you said for a second, I mean, you're, I mean, you're talking about picking things up and reading them for pleasure, which I think is a wonderful thing to do, and actually gives you a, a better foundation for reviewing something. I mean, that was always the theory about, about trying to review things you'd like. 
But what what occurs to me is I think this is going to be one of those years where the best hard science fiction novels of the year are going to be written by women. And that's an interesting evolution, not because they've never been capable of it, but they generally don't get credited with it. So I think when you look at The Stars are Legion, when you look at Raven's Stratagem, which is the Yoon Ha Lee book, when you look at Provenance by uh, Anne Leckie, when you look at the final of the Nora Jemison series, which I think is science fiction, not fantasy, um, it's going to be quite an interesting year to look back on. I think it's true, except that I believe Yoon Ha Lee identifies as male now. But, um, but but I think you're right, and I think this is one of the things that happened. I think with last year's Nebulas, when all the awards and all uh, all, all the uh, all the awards and all the categories went to women, uh, but the idea of hard science fiction being a, a, a male thing or even being uh, a military thing is seems to me to be really antiquated. Even though uh, the, the even the title of Nine Fox Gambit deals with a an interesting combination of military strategy, game theory, and Korean folklore. And then, I was going to say that that's simply an illustration of what I was talking about: reinventing traditional science fiction themes and tropes through varying the perspective on it, varying or adding different perspectives to it. Uh, so you have, for example. Um, Korean hard science fiction. You have um, not with her novels, uh, but with Elliot de Bodard's short fiction. You have uh, Vietnamese hard science, Vietnamese Mayan hard science fiction, or something. Uh, and this this is a way of reinventing the whole history of the field, and that's what I think is interesting. Uh, people who love space operas uh, in the 1930s could can read Cam Hurley's novel, which is a flat-out space opera with a lot of body horror in it as well, but with all women characters. Uh, she, she makes no particular point of saying this at anywhere in the novel, but there are no male characters in it at all. Um, I think that's one of the things that this addition of new perspectives does to the field, is it opens up the whole history of the field to a kind of reinvention. Uh, we've talked any number of times about how uh, Lovecraft has been reinvented by Victor Laval and Kids Johnson and so, and so forth and so on. But and, and when I mentioned the Riverbank, which is Kenneth Graham, okay, Kenneth Graham with female characters. That's pretty much part of what she's doing. It's a much more adventurous plot. Uh, so, so essentially, by simply introducing um, characters of different genders, of different races, of different ethnic backgrounds of different languages it it makes the whole tradition of science fiction look different um, there's not I don't think there's a lot much there's, there's not much you can do with the idea of a galactic empire uh, but you can use that in a new way and I think that's what these uh, newer writers are doing I think there's truth to that and I think there's also a desire to interrogate things because I mean obviously one of the primary questions you've got to ask yourself right is what does the new perspective bring you know it's like you mentioned the riverbank which is the gender swapped uh, version well not gender swap which is not adding a female perspective to um, right to the wind and the willows because right it's not gender swapped at all it's actually a sequel of sorts from a female perspective or with and, a female perspective and, yeah and you've got to ask yourself well and what does that bring? 
What does it give rather than just, and there's women? That in itself is a valuable thing, but is there more to it? And there is. I mean, I've not read the book yet, but I know Kidge fairly well, and I would suggest that it opens it up to political interrogation of the structures of the society and the story being told, with that, not in a tiresome kind of wearisome political way, but nonetheless to open it up to, to, to a whole other way of talking about that story and th- that kind well, of story. Here's another uh, another thing I noticed in that, and I've noticed it in in some other novels as well. And Connie Willis comes to mind here is that you're more likely. The, the, the other thing about the Riverbank is that it's hilarious. It has it has a lot of screwball comedy. It has a lot of slapstick comedy in it. Um, and it seems to me, and I don't know if I can defend this at all, and probably won't be able to, that by and large dealing with humor in science fiction, which has always been an issue. It's something that these days women are doing more often, more consistently, and better. Um, and even when Connie Willis's fiction isn't at its best, it's funny. Uh, there are funny bus- there, there, there are funny, witty businesses um, in, in, in the Kids Johnson novel. There are funny bits in the Rift. There, are, uh, in, in other words, it's kind of not just bringing a, a gender perspective to it. But it's bringing back some ideas that seem to have just boiled out of the genre because it's become so uh, purified over the years. When was the last time you read a funny space opera? Not counting Douglas Adams. But count Douglas Adams. I don't care. A funny space opera? Mm-hmm. I don't know. I don't know that I would yep. consider space operas funny. I mean, fun, engaging. I mean, a book like um, Revenger by Al Reynolds is fun and engaging, but I don't know that it's funny. I thought there were some very funny bits in it. Well, then uh, that's but, the last time that I read a funny one then. Okay. I mean, but by humor, I'm not talking about parody. That's that's. I mean, Harry Harrison wrote very funny sure. parodies he of did. space operas. I never liked uh, them much, but he did. Oh, I think the Bujold have a lot of humor in them. Bouchard has humor. I have not, as I said many times, not read enough to get a sense of that, but it certainly is there. Um, and I think there's. Let me think. Um, Cherry by comparison is somewhat door, I think. Um, yeah, I think that's. And you can. You well, can okay. hmm. there's a good deal of humor in Ian Banks. A colossal amount of humor in Ian Banks, and ironic given the most recent episode of the podcast that he wouldn't leap to mind. But yes, and in fact, I sat right. down and I reread part of. Uh, consider Phlebas uh, after mm-hmm. the podcast and found it disturbingly engaging in the sense that I wanted to give up reading anything else I was reading at the moment and go off and read it instead. But Okay, I could be completely wrong about my theory of gendering humor in science fiction because the other very funny writer that comes to mind, I may be wrong. As soon as the banks then I was thinking, okay, a, a, a novella, another novella I thought I'd pick up uh, from from our Friends at Subterranean, who seemed to do this very well, was um, K.J. Parker, novella called Mightier Than the Sword. Uh, not a very good title, I have to say. It could mean almost anything. Uh, it becomes kind of a funny title once you've read it. But Parker can actually get me laughing out loud occasionally. There's a kind of almost Joseph Heller-esque attitude toward these things, and there's a very insouciant voice. So, so there is humor in fantasy. My now, which makes me think of another point: Is there more humor in fantasy now than there is in science fiction? Well, there's always been a really obvious, um, well, a more obvious st- stream of uh, 
humor in fantasy. But the, the, yeah. the, the prevalent kind of fantasy around, I mean, I suppose, that, and that's without being the greatest reader of it, Gary, so you have to be careful, is it mm. does tend to be somewhat dark adventure rather than, you know, light, fluffy humor stuff. Though there was lots of, I mean, I remember reading lots of, I mean, Rob, anything with Robert Asprin's name attached to it was always light and funny. And there's all that kind of, yeah. kind of stuff. And I'm sure there's a lot, actually, and I mean this with respect, actually, a lot from Bane. The whole Jodie Lynn Nye kind of area and all that kind of stuff over at Bane, I think, would probably have a lot of humor and lightness to it. Well, okay, but I'm like, I, I, I want to make a distinction now between humor and lightness. Uh, because when I when you, you mention something like the K.J. Parker things, they, they, they have very grim things to say about the nature of war and about human nature. They're very cynical novels. They're very dark novels. And, and, and the, the, probably the longest standing tradition of humorous fantasy in our field, uh, and in terms of a direct influence on later writers, is, is Fritz Leiber. Uh, because with the Fawford and the Grey Mauser stories, you have Lankmar, you have stories that have influenced Michael Swanwick, you have stories that have influenced Neil Gaiman, you have everybody who does uh, some variation on that, including our friend Garth Nix. Uh, goes back to that fantasy of, of banter between two unlikely heroes. Um, and those are not necessarily light stories, however. They're not necessarily fluffy stories. I know I used to, I used to enjoy the Robert Asprin things. I could read one in an afternoon. And then after I read two or three of them, to be honest, I thought I could probably write one in an afternoon too. It's just a matter of putting the puns together. And, but to go back to – well, there's – let, let, let's not go there because that takes us down a Floridian path that I don't want to go down. So move, move okay, forward. I don't want to, okay, let, let, let me back off from science fiction and fantasy uh, into mainstream literature. One of the books which I think most influenced my outlook on life was, and which is also, I still think today, one of the funniest books I've ever read is Joseph Heller's Catch-22, which is also one of the most disturbing books I've read because you're laughing your head off and then you realize that the things you're laughing at are really, really very grim. I've always liked Thomas Pynchon for that reason as well. Um, so uh, the kind of humor I'm talking about in in science fiction and fantasy is that is what in the 60s they called black humor. Um, and, and Vonnegut was a perfect example of this. Vonnegut was probably even today, looking in terms of literary history, was the bridge between the black humorists of the 1960s, the John Barths, the uh, Thomas Pynchons, the Joseph Hellers, and the kind of dark humor that sometimes characterized our field, because Vonnegut knew his way around science fiction, even though he pretended not to. Uh, so things like uh, Slaughterhouse-Five uh, and um, Cat's Cradle in particular are examples of what I'd say very funny apocalyptic depressing books well I, I, can we, think, I can think of then a lot of work that begins to move into that that territory I mean to, mm -hmm. to take a step back walking into the kind of sly and sardonic wit of the, the Lankmar material pretty plainly mm -hmm. someone like Joe Abercrombie sits in that tradition and can Absolutely. be funny and darkly funny uh, yes and the obvious choice that didn't occur to me for whatever reason when it comes to science fiction or fantasy and humor and sits in exactly the tradition you're talking about with Heller has to be Jim, Jim Morrow. Um, well, Morrow, who interestingly enough has been compared to Vonnegut more than any other genre writer and, 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 and he knows it. 
uh, I think that there's a lot of, and he's 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 got a new uh, novella coming out from Tachyon, the cat, nothing, Doctor Caligari, the Asylum of Doctor Caligari, um, and he does a lot of stuff with uh, popular culture. He's done the Godzilla movies. He's doing the Cabinet of Doctor Caligari here. Uh, he's done 1950s children's television programming in the Madonna and the Starship. So he's a classic satirist. He probably is the active science fiction writer uh, today who has preeminently gained his reputation as a satirist. And you're right, some of this is very dark material. Um, but I think it's also one of the things I would say to Jim Morrow, and I, I did say this to Jim Morrow, so I'm not taking any risk here, is that he's taking on these targets in a very uh, lighthearted but very serious way and does not become quite as smug and self-satisfied as the later Vonnegut did. I mean, once Vonnegut uh, had written So It Goes as, 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 as a tagline in um, – was that Cat's Cradle? I think it was. Remember that was anyway – Every other novel had to have a tagline. In other words, you can become a professional cynic. You, 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 you can become somebody who who doesn't really challenge things anymore. I think Morrow is challenging one thing after another. And he's a very good example. He's somebody who can be very funny, but who's never fluffy. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm uh, painfully it, aware that there are people who are shouting names at the podcast even now. I'm that just sure don't happen to be, you know, occurring to us because we, you know, when we talk about humorous fantasy or sardonic fantasy, we, we haven't mentioned Stephen Brust though. His Taltos no. stuff, books are famously so. We we didn't talk about Barry Hewart and the Bridge of Birds, right. which is a hilarious book. The whole um, Master Lee and Tenox, whatever they were, um, series of books. And I think didn't he die recently? I think he died recently. I think he may have. I'm, we should look that up. I'm going to look it up. I'm going to look it up, and I'm going to pretend that I'm not suddenly picking up another device and googling to to try and protect myself. And we, say, yeah, we certainly don't want to. to what, what, what to say goodbye to him before he's gone? <laughs> I'm pretty sure, but I'm not. I can't be 100 percent sure. Um, play some googling music, Gary. <laughs> okay. Well, the point are you're absolutely right. There are a lot of humorous writers. There, 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 there are uh, parts of uh, Alan Kushner that are very funny. Um, there is a lot of uh, sort of sword and sorcery thing. But what I'm trying to make a distinction of here, distinction between both in terms of fantasy and in terms of science fiction, is making a distinction between something which parodies a tradition. And I think Harry Harrison did that brilliantly with parodying Heinlein, for example. Yep. And something which uses that tradition, uses the humor in that tradition, to nevertheless make a serious statement. Uh, yeah. Another way of asking the question, is there a science fiction version, or since you've introduced this, is there a fantasy version of Catch-22? I don't know. Just quickly, Barry Huart, age 33, and a native of Peoria, Illinois, a place that you know. Um, Barry Huart, Peoria, Illinois? Mm-hmm. In 1934, Peoria is the second most famous science fiction writer. Um, that's bizarre. I will have to tell. Well, maybe third because Gene Wolfe lives there now. Okay, well, well, then definitely third. Sorry, Barry, but you'd have to line up behind, you know, Phil Farmer and and, and Jane, I think. Yeah, and maybe behind Richard Pryor, who also is a 
native of Peoria. We're completely getting off the topic now. What, what um, topic, Gary? I mean, um, yeah, I mean, look, there's, there, I guess, topic, yeah. And then, of course, there's Pratchett and fantasy and so on. Well, okay, there is, and, and, and I, okay, that's true. There, you can't say and so on, because Pratchett comes the closest I can think of to having done catch-22 kinds of things in fantasy. It's very funny and very dark at the same time. And I've not read all of Pratchett, uh, but what I've read, uh, including, and I'm thinking actually specifically of The Night Watch, uh, has a lot of the kind of sophisticated thinking, uh, strategic thinking, and just flat-out hilarious comedy in it at the same time. So maybe we answered the question. Maybe Pratchett solved the problem. Douglas Adams uh, was both a parody and not a parody. Yeah, I, I sometimes wonder if, if Adams gets a, a fraction more credit than he deserves because of the runaway popularity of of um, the Hitchhiker's Guide. Um, I, I have mixed feelings about that as well. But if you, as I did at some point, read the original radio scripts, um, this is somebody who loved science fiction and was involved with it and was having a lot of fun with it. He was sure. not trying to extend the. Uh, he's not trying to extend the scope of science fiction as speculative literature, uh, but it was very funny. I mean, he was it, it, again. If, if if Vonnegut was the bridge between 1960s black humor and science fiction, it seems to me that Adams was the bridge between absurdist goon show Monty Python British comedy and science fiction. Yeah, yeah. Let me bring something completely unrelated into the conversation now. A good plan. Thank you very much. Thank you. No, thank you very much. I'm not sure this will go far, though it's an interesting point. It's just that you and I may not be the people to have the conversation. But let's give it a go. So the other day, having forsaken Facebook because it was I wasn't having fun, I was on Twitter because you know you can't actually have no social media at all, and I had an interaction with Elliot de Bodard, who you were mentioning really? a moment ago. Yes, and she had said something on Twitter, and I risk. You know, misquoting her, but in paraphrasing her, so uh, you know, assign this to me rather than to her. But she was sort of saying that she was feeling concerned because so much of what constitutes epic fantasy was problematic. Not my favorite way of describing anything, but problematic. Uh, and it was problematic because it was based on inherited privilege. It seemed to her in this statement of 140 characters that grossly simplified what she was talking about, that there was a driving force in epic fantasy primarily that told stories that were about the restoration of inherited privilege based on bloodline. And well, that sounds like... Go ahead. No, and, and I had to say, say to her that I, I, I thought that she had a hell of a point. You know, that it seems that for epic fantasy particularly, that is a has been a really dominant mode or theme. Well, that's the plot of The Return of the King, obviously. Sure. And almost and every other epic fantasy you can think of. Okay, that's my question. Is this something, is this restoration of the monarchy theme something which is endemic to fantasy, or is it an artifact of the enormous influence Tolkien has had on subsequent fantasy. In other words, would that be the case if you looked at pre-Tolkien epic fantasies? Uh, and that would be difficult because it would mean going back and looking at William Morris and... But, hmm, no? 
First of all, I would ask no. you to seriously ask yourself how many of what we would recognize as modern epic fantasies existed before Tolkien. There are epics, not, but are there epic fantasies? And, and it's not, not a harem splitting. It's a big difference. No, I mean, uh, you're absolutely right in that sense. I mean, uh, uh, I, like a, other, and other people of my generation, was spoiled in terms of the history of fantasy, well, I, partly because I was an academic and I was studying it, but partly because the Ballantine adult fantasy series decided that people like E.R. Edison and William Morris and Ernest Brahma uh, and George MacDonald were versions of epic fantasy, which they were, but not in the form that Tolkien gave it. Not in the idea that there is a struggle for the dominion over the world, which is a struggle between the forces of utter evil, between you know the, the Saurons and the Voldemorts of the world, and the middle class, which always ends up in the middle, and finally the restoration of the throne, which is really what the return of the king is about. Even the title says that. She may have a good point there. How much of it, though, is to do with Tolkien, and how much of it is to do with the fact that Modern epic fantasy primarily bases its setting and structure on Middle European history. Oh, I think that's absolutely true. I mean, it's, it's, I can see completely why Aliette would make that point, because what she does uh, in her fantasy, well, the two volumes so far, is, is, is a deliberate and pointed collision between Middle European history and Vietnamese history. Um, and I think we've seen the same thing. Uh, with Ken Liu reimagining epic fantasy in Chinese terms in his series that's going on. I think um, the, the, this is part of what we were talking about earlier when we talk about bringing new perspectives into this. That it's not, it's, it's basically the restoration of monarchy is a good par portion of the history of Europe in the Middle Ages. Or the, or the, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, I'm, I'm, I'm taking taking control of of, 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 of a monarchy. In other words, um, you have a lot of struggle in Middle European history uh, between inherited privilege and increasingly what you might call capitalist privilege. That is, people who work their way up through. Uh, through uh, the emerging industries and become wealthy but are not royal. Uh, one of the okay, one of the people who's consistently dealt with this has been Guy Gabriel Kay in his European stories. And it's interesting that when he turns to China, he's looking at a different dynamic of power. Um, he's looking at it's it's something which is very dynastic and very much uh, dealing with the, with inherited privilege. Uh, but he's questioning that, and it seems to me that the way you question it in China is different than the way you question it in Europe. I don't know I'm going anywhere with this. My point is, I guess, that Eliot seems to have a good point there. Uh, and Tolkien was certainly basing uh, his ideas on European history, as George R. R. Martin bases his ideas on European history. Sure. So, so I, I, is this a model of, of European history? I don't know. I mean, I, I think that's part. I, I do think that's part of it. I think mm. it's interesting thinking, you know, asking yourself. I mean, I don't know where this goes yet because I've not thought it through enough. But if you have a stream that says there is uh, blood privilege, if you like, right, yeah. and, and the purity of the blood is what gets restored 
through you know placing the king back on the throne or whoever or the lost king or whoever it might be is it much different when it's a mercantilist privilege you know where it's inherited and earned wealth rather than the actual uh, blood and is there to throw on top of that a stream of fantasy that actually has some kind of if you like merit based kind of uh, achievement that that drives it all well that's an interesting question and we need to think about this because the one of the common tropes in this kind of fantasy is and this by the way uh, includes the Wonder Woman movie which I saw yeah. today which is which is very good and that is the chosen one myth the idea that mm-hmm. you know this person may come from lower classes, but is really the son of a prince, is really the son of a god, is really a god, uh, whatever. And that seems to me to be a way of mythologizing what, in America at least, has been the tra- traditional rags-to-riches Horatio Alger story. Um, it's, it's what you get in, in Mark Twain's The Prince and the Pauper. Somebody who seems to be an ordinary, undistinguished person is really a hero. That is... I don't think that's based on history. I think it's based on psychology. I think it's based on something like the foster child fantasy. Mm-hmm. I have to be way better than my parents are because look at them. <laughs> but then how often is what you're leveraging to be better than your parents some other form of privilege? You know, For example, yes, I'm the foster child. My true parents were the one true family, the one true blood. Yeah, exactly. and, and so I can, I can now come from my farm out in the middle of nowhere with my plowshare and take over the, the country and run it because I'm actually the one, you know, the, the one true king or the one true queen or whatever else. I think that's true, and I think that's uh, – I, I, it, it, I don't know if it's a flaw in the plotting or if it's simply become a kind of cliché. I know one of the things – to go back to remembering my reading, uh, that one of the fantasy novels that completely captivated me for its inversion of that was The Last Unicorn. It was Peter Beagle, with Spendrick the magician, who is not a secret master of anything. He's not even very good at what he does, as we should add this to our list of, of humorous things, but who somehow manages to, you know, to, to to make his way through the novel. So, so the lost privilege thing, I think you're absolutely right. Uh, on the one hand, in the European tradition, uh, and, and in Tolkien's terms specifically in the British tradition, is I am the lost prince. I am Anastasia. I am the lost daughter of the Tsar. Whereas in America, it's uh, the little orphan Annie tradition, whereas I may be utterly poor, but I have a good heart and I'm going to end up as a billionaire. Yeah. See, I, I guess the key tag here in this description is the epic part of it, because epic fantasy is a particular form. I mean, Mm. The we've already touched on in our previous part of our discussion, arguably the greatest advocate of a type of fantasy tale that argued against this privileging, and that is the Discworld by Terry Pratchett. Absolutely, surely the greatest anti sort of the one true one ever to the point where the one true one in the entire story is the sheriff down in, on the, with the guard rather than the king on a throne kind of a thing. And the king on the throne thing is viewed with enormous distrust. Mm-hmm. And, and, and Pratchett had said many times, and I've been told this by my partner, Stacy, who's did her, done research on he apparently said in many cases that the whole Discworld series began not as a response to Tolkien, but as a response to bad imitations of Tolkien. Uh, 
without mentioning any specific names, but the idea that, okay, here was a formula which was fairly sophisticated and had a great deal of nuance in it and a great deal of development of different kinds of characters and the relationship of nature and technology and history and uh, all that worked. And, and suddenly you got it reduced to the simple element of the lost hero, the missing hero, uh, um, which, which to some extent took all the, all the sophisticated history and, um, and, and philosophy out of it and returned it to a basic hero myth. Returned it to an Oedipus myth. Returned it to you know I'm a, a Gilgamesh myth. I'm I am the flawed but secret hero of the world. Given that, for whatever reasons, it is such a fundamental part of so many myths and myth structures. This idea of mm-hmm. the chosen one, the true blood, whatever else. Can there be a form of epic fantasy that isn't based on it? And where would that go? Well, I think the, uh, I think there's a great deal of fantasy, and now we're getting into a territory where I, I wish I'd been reading a lot more recent fantasy than I have been. Um, it seems to me a lot of recent fantasy, including Ken Liu's series, does question that. Uh, does question the idea that um, uh, the, the assumption, I guess, which has always bothered me, and it bothered me even in Tolkien, was does the fact that you are the deposed king, that you are... Uh, um, the forgotten heir to the throne or the uh, despised person who really has superpowers, that doesn't necessarily make you comp- competent at what you're doing. In other That's words, true. Uh, we, we have no reason uh, particularly to believe that uh, the restoration of the king at the end of Lord of the Rings, that Aragorn is going to make a particularly good king at all. We've, he's he's no. a pretty good fighter. That's all we know about him. Um, and there was a see there, there was a novel I, I'm trying to remember who it was oh man it may have been a Sean Stewart novel but I'll have to I think it oh. was a Sean Stewart Nobody's yeah. Son yeah oh great Nobody's Son it, it, it was a deliberate response to that idea yeah. what happens when after the end what happens when you actually become responsible for the kingdom all the skills that got you through that trilogy are now useless uh, and you have to more or less start over and figure out how to govern. Uh, and I, I think that's something which uh, I'm sure has been dealt with uh, in more modern fantasy novels than the Sean Stewart novel. But what struck me at, 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 at that one was that it uh, it didn't question the power of the original story. It questioned the after effect of the original story. Yeah, in other yeah. words, is, is this anything other than a good story for a trilogy? Well, I suppose particularly since I think, and I, you know, I think I'm not too far off, if you look underneath what Elliot was questioning, there's that, you know, it's not do you create a story where you replace the one true privilege with some other form of one true privilege to be inherited. Uh. It's, it's removing that concept altogether. And it is what's left, what we recognize as being epic fantasy at all. Well, I mean, you're asking, is, is epic fantasy necessarily about the restoration of a hero? I suppose. And the, well, okay. Epic fantasy tends to be about a, the hero's journey of some form, setting yeah. aside the Campbellian history of that. Uh, however, it's how you define the hero. 
right? Mm-hmm. You know, because you know, this this version of inherited privilege that we're talking about, of inherited worth, inherited value based on your blood or whatever else and nothing more, um, that is just but one way of defining what a hero could be. Um, how do you take? How do you, you know, if you take the hero's journey out of epic fantasy? What do you have left? I think you have a lot of options left. I think sure. this is one of the things to, to get back to Aliak. Uh, it's one of the things that she's exploring in her trilogy. In the mm. second novel, The House of Binding Thorns, to me, and I don't know if she agrees with this or not, to me the most intriguing character uh, is a woman who was a who was a, who was a fallen angel. She fell at the same time as, 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 as one of the more traditionally heroic characters who just decides to set everything out. She becomes a recluse. She has uh, – she, she sets up housekeeping in, in, in the main part of Paris away from – from all the fallen gods, away from all the supernatural stuff, and she just basically wants to be a decent uh, protector of humans, but the the, the the whole business of power isn't of no interest to her at all. And I think you can make a heroic character out of someone who is not interested in power. Now, the question I have is, does a lack of interest in power violate the terms of heroic fantasy? Does heroic fantasy depend on the right people coming into power at the end of it? Or is it possible that abnegating the whole idea of power is a possible plot for a heroic fantasy? Now, that's a more interesting question, because I was going to say there are other ways of approaching the heroic adventure, if you like. Mm-hmm. And you can see it when you look at the more uh, street-level approaches of, of Liber, of Abercrombie, of whomever else. But can you can, can you tell an inverse epic fantasy, if you like, the reverse of the hero's journey? Maybe I mean is that is that in Donaldson somewhere? Um, in the, I think it does. In the second trilogy, it sort of creates a new set of problems for him. But you're still dealing with. Uh, well, actually, actually, now that you mention it, the whole notion of Thomas Covenant. Is that he doesn't believe where he is is real, but also I mean uh, he, he, he he acts in a very anti-heroic way. I mean he's a fairly loathsome character. He's, he's a horrible character, absolutely. You know, um, and, and and yet he has to fulfill this role. So there there is that aspect, but that's that's an anti-heroic heroic fantasy, which isn't quite the same thing that you're asking about. I think. No, no, it's not. Um, I, I, I don't have an answer myself to this. You know, I, I feel like I need to go away and do research and come back to the podcast when I've done my homework. No, the simplest thing to do is to ask our listeners to tell us what we're missing here. <laughs> you know, what what is the – not just – somebody was asking me uh, the, the other day about the, the, the hero's journey, which is something that's familiar to us from, from Campbell and so forth and so on. There's a formula, which by the way, it was interesting in reading Chip Delaney's journals, how much he hated uh, Campbell's formulaic hero myth. And somebody was asking me, is there an anti-hero myth that goes with the hero myth? And I said, basically, no, because the anti-hero is a literary construct. The anti-hero is something, and one of the things that Donaldson did, I believe, that really added to, added an entirely new dimension to the Tolkien tradition, was basically adding an anti-heroic hero. Somebody who in many ways was not admirable, but who had to play his role in this world anyway. Um, so I don't think that's it. I don't think that the anti-hero in an epic fantasy 
changes the nature of the epic fantasy. It simply changes the nature of the character that we're following. Um, the idea of an epic fantasy that completely upends the epic part of it, completely upends the restoration of it, that ends with a um, egalitarian democracy rather than a restored monarchy. That may be what Elliot was asking about. Maybe. I mean, look, I've got to say, if it's out there, and I don't think it's – I mean, I, I briefly wondered if Charlie Strauss's Merchant Princess fell in here somewhere or something. But it would be very interesting to see if there is a a functional deconstruction, a deconstruction of empire – uh, to the benefit of the people who who live within the empire, in a way that makes a compelling and worthwhile story. Uh, the, I mean, because it's 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 easier to see a transference of power in story than an abdication of power. I think that's true, and I, I think that's one of the problems that we've seen with a lot of fantasy, and for that matter, we can include a lot of science fiction sure. in this. In other words, you can replace. The uh, the male heir to the throne with a female heir to the, heir to the throne. You can you can replace the person with a uh, bisexual or a, 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 or, or a gay. And you, you can take anybody you want to, but you're still maintaining that basic structure mm-hmm. of the story. It's true. Uh, so simply replacing the character with hitherto despised characters, simply moving fantasy out of the realm of white male privilege, isn't solving the structural problem that Elliot's talking about. No. But can I say, possibly as a way of drawing a line onto this part of the discussion, if you're out there and you're listening to us and you're a writer of fantasy, we'd love to see you attempt to write a deconstruction, a, a deconstructionist epic fantasy novel or, or, or novella. I think that would be a really interesting thing. This is where we find out that bloody Ian MacDonald did it in King of Morning, Queen of Day. He did and I've forgotten the details. Mm-hmm. That's what it'll be. I have to go pull the book off the shelf. I mean, I have one over here. But, sorry, sorry, listeners, I'm pointing at, at, at my bookshelf over to, to my right at, at a copy of King of Morning, Queen of Day, rather than anything useful for you. So my apologies, well, visual I, key there. But, but I, think, I think what we're talking about, and what, we can find examples going back as far as, what was that was 20-some years ago, almost mm. 30 years ago. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, there are probably examples throughout the history of fantasy that do this. But I think the point that was to me, implied by Aliette's Twitter post, is that you have individual works like that, but you still have the dominant paradigm. Yeah. The dominant paradigm seems to be commercially successful. And while you have individual writers, and Ian McDonald has always done what he wanted to do. Um, Terry Pratchett did what he wanted to do. He, he fortunately became very successful at it. But by and large, I think she's right. I, sh- I think the template for most modern fantasy epics is still the old one. It can be revised. It can oh, be yeah. undermined by individual writers. But uh, I'm, I'm guessing that any number of young people out there now who are on the third or fourth volume of their unpublished fantasy epic are doing exactly what we're complaining about. Possibly so. Possibly so. We shall see. Um, we were going to talk about the... Campbell Ballot, which has just been released. I don't know how much time we have to go into detail with it now, but uh, the nice people in Kansas at the is it the Lawrence the, the Gun Center for, in Lawrence. Yeah, the Gun Center. I will be for the first time ever attending the Campbell Conference, uh, where the Sturgeon Awards and the Campbell Awards are presented. Yeah, and I'm looking forward to it because uh, some of our friends are. Good podcast friend, Kids Johnson, teaches at the University of Kansas and is involved with these awards. Uh, Jim Gunn, who is my mentor, is 
um, involved with these awards. He has a new novel out at what, 94 or something. The thing that struck me about the uh, Campbell Awards is that it's a juried award, and it has the two things that are very striking about it. Uh, one is that it has virtually no overlap with the Hugo Ballot. Uh, I think the only overlap really – and the, on, the one overlap with the Hugo Ballot is Kids Johnson's The Dream Quest of Velvet Bow, which we both adore and you, in fact, made real. Yes. So, well, well, no, she made it real. I just, I just edited it and helped shepherd it into print. And it's, it's so, so it's on the Campbell Award ballot as a novel. Yes. Even though it's on the Hugo Award ballot as a novella. Well, I suppose. Well, I suppose we need to probably step in there for a second and just say, I I don't actually have a set of rules. Well, no, I, I take it back. I was going to say, um, no, but you're right. Yes, uh, according to the the the, uh, the the Gun Center for the Study of Science Fiction's website about the Je- the John W. Campbell Memorial Award, it is for best science fiction novel, and to my knowledge. The Dream Quest of Velvet Bow is now the shortest science fiction novel to be nominated for that award, at about no, thirty-eight thousand words. Uh, yeah, I, I don't know if the Campbell uh, Award has a definition of what a novel is in terms of word length. Um, and I've had this; we've had this discussion before. I've had this discussion. Actually, we mentioned K.J. Parker earlier. There are plenty of novellas which have the feeling of a novel in them, but by in terms of the number of narrative lines in it. Charles Brown used to say, okay, a novel has to have more than one narrative line in it, uh, which may or may not be true. But um, but by and large, I don't know if there is a word count definition for what the Campbell Award is. I, I don't it's interesting. Yeah. Well, and the Spurgeon Award is... We, we, should we mention who the nominees I was going to say, we, we should probably actually... Tell listeners what was nominated for the 2017 John W. Campbell Memorial Award. I have the list in front of me. Funny you should enough, ask. Funnily enough. This is the list, and it's a fairly long list. Alistair Reynolds and Stephen Baxter's The Medusa Chronicles, which is in some ways a tribute to Arthur C. Clarke. Don DeLillo's Zero K, uh, one of the mainstream novels that shows up on these lists. Kitch Johnson's The Dream Quest of Velvet Bow. Paul McCauley's Into Everywhere. Nisi Shaw's Everfair, which is also on the Nebula, was on the Nebula ballot. Patricia Sullivan's Occupy Me, Tate Thompson's Rosewater, Lavi Tidar's Central Station, Colson Whitehead's The Underground Railroad, and I'd like to talk a little bit about mainstream books that get nominated. Uh, Aaliyah Whiteley's The Arrival of Missives, Rick Wilbur's Alien Morning, Ben Winter's Underground Airlines, and John Nicholas Wood's Azanian Bridges. I That's assume very, I'm pronouncing it. Well, hang on. That, the, the latter is a very strange um, uh, reportage because the book is by Nick Wood. Oh, by Nick Wood, yeah. And it says John Nicholas Wood. Yes, yeah, so that's a, str- a strange kind of thing. Um, I, and probably actually just looking at things, I noticed that the arrival of missives by... Um, by Aliyah Whiteley is quite a brief book as well. We were talking about the Kids Johnson, but it's only about 120 pages long. So your observations, I mean, I think I know what has to win. I think that's not really particularly challenging, and I'll be surprised if it doesn't. So I'm curious Mm -hmm. as to your observations. I I, I have no idea how to make a prediction for this because it's a juried award. Um, (coughs) But but all uh, the jury are known to us, Gary. 
Well, that's true, but and, they don't agree with one another. Okay. Well, well, hang on, hang on, wait a second, wait a second. I don't think, I've got to be clear here, I don't mean that you and I are mates with them all, and hence they are known to us. I mean, a lot of their opinions are public or semi-public. So for that reason, well, I would be startled if Colson Whitehead's The Underground Railroad does not win this award. Well, let me let, let me argue a little bit against that, because one of the things that comes up into, into consideration like this, and this is this may have to do with going all the way back to when Gravity's Rainbow did not win the Nebula Award. Is there a sense among judges or among voters that somebody who's got a National Book Award doesn't really need a Hugo at this point? Not these people, no. Okay, these people. And I say just, just to be clear, hang on, just to be clear. Someone like, say, Paul Kincaid, who was on our podcast the other week and who I like Uh and respect greatly, has been very clear in writing for his Not the Clark Award and everything else, the work that he Uh admires for the year. So I I feel comfortable in in tagging something like that. And also saying that for some of these people, and I I would imagine that Lisa, who's also on the podcast not very long ago, are are the kind of people who wouldn't look to separate out those mainstream science fiction writers and would include them. We should, since you've mentioned this already, uh, and the press release mentions the jurors, the jurors are, uh, you mentioned Lisa Yasek and, and Paul Kincaid, uh, who have both been on the podcast recently, along with Gregory Benford, Sheila Finch, James Gunn, Elizabeth Ann Hull, and Christopher McKitterick, and Pamela Sargent. Um, and I could, I, I could agree that most of the people on this list would go for something like Colson Whitehead, which in my view of the novels I've read, and I've read a fair amount on this list, was the best novel as a novel. It's a brilliant novel. I mean, it's probably a major novel, whether or not you look at it in genre. Uh, If you're looking at it for genre content, you could look at it from a different point of view. Um, But this is also, by and large, a list of jurors, many of whom would tend to favor more traditional kinds of science fiction. Possibly, possibly so. I mean, uh, I mean, I will be curious to see how they ultimately have deliberated. But I think what's interesting, actually, what, what's genuinely interesting about this is you've mm-hmm. talked about the the revolution of perspective uh, in mm-hmm. science fiction, and a lot of the books that you're looking at on this particular list, what makes them interesting and powerful is that they're part of that revolution of perspective. I think you get right. that in Nick Wood's book, which I've read as Anian Bridges, which is a terrific novel. You get it in the Colson Whitehead. You get it in the, in the Lavi Titar, in the Tade Thompson, in the Nisi Shawl, uh, in the Kids Johnson. They are about the inversion of perspective in really interesting and powerful ways. And what's also incredibly encouraging is that there are, and this touches also on our recent conversation with Jeff Ryman, African mm-hmm. and non-traditional voices for the white science fiction community to have brought into. So again, Nick Wood, who's South African, Tade Thompson, who right. I think comes from Africa, uh, are a broadening of that. No, I think it's true, and I think that when you look at a list like this, and I don't know what the Campbell Award list would have looked like 10 years ago, I'm mm. guessing this is radically different. Um, yes and no. I mean, you can see the core, well, parts of the traditional, if you, for want of a better way, um, Campbell ballot 
in a book like the Medusa Chronicles, which isn't just a, a nod of sorts to Arthur Clarke, but it's actually a sequel to an Arthur Clarke book. Um, and uh, Paul Macaulay with you know, into, into oh. everywhere. Macaulay's been a long time uh, you know, nominee for for the Campbell for right. good reason, you know, truthfully. Well, and and you mentioned by the way um, that. Your prediction would be Colson Whitehead, which is the one I've read. I've not read Don DeLillo's Zero K, no. but Don DeLillo is the other mainstream writer with a uh, a nod on this ballot, and who's been on ballots before, as I recall. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Um, and it's interesting. So, I just pulled up a random other ballot for the the Campbell in terms of balance. But in 2005, uh, Paul McCauley, who's up this year, was up against Philip Roth and Audrey Niffenegger. Oh, okay. That's exactly what I Okay. Now, now, now that... That's interesting because Philip Roth is a great novelist. I have there are problems, there are all kinds of issues of his attitudes toward gender, but his he's written some great novels going back to Goodbye Columbus. And the plot against America is not bad. Hmm. Uh, I think people were irritated by the fact that he thought he had invented the whole alternate history subgenre, which he's he, which is simple ignorance. That's fine, I and mean, it's it's. it's Audrey Niffenegger was writing a enjoyable romantic novel using a science fiction device. But five, this is interesting, five of the jurors who were on the jury in 1995 are on this year's jury, and guess what won that year? Market Forces uh, by Richard Morgan. Richard Morgan? Okay, that, this, this is working against your prediction here, isn't it? Well, no, because I'm, I'm basically suggesting that time... And the changes in the jury is what will, what will push it. I mean, I will tell you that there are a group of works on there that I'll be delighted to see win. Oh, there are for me, too. But, um, but that would still be my pick. Medusa Chronicles, which I, I, I admit, admittedly I've not read, I admire both Alastair Reynolds and Stephen Baxter, from what I've been told, moves well beyond and in probably better written than Clark's original Meeting with Medusa. But it's clearly a nod to traditional science fiction, to classics of science fiction, to classic writers of science fiction. In its own subtle way, Lavi Tidar's Central Station is the same thing. It's full of allusions to earlier science fiction. It's, it's appreciative and so forth. And uh, whereas things such as Underground Airlines, the, the Ben Winters book we didn't mention, um, or the Don DeLillo or the... Um, Colson Whitehead have nothing to do with the history of science fiction. They're what used to be called interlopers. Uh, well, they sometimes were called associational titles. Uh, the under the, the thing that, that here's the difference. There was an article in the New Yorker recently about mainstream writers writing science fiction. I think the Philip Roth argument or the old Margaret Atwood argument that they're simply trampling on our garden doesn't really work anymore. Uh, I don't think it even works for Margaret Atwood anymore. Um, Because Colson Whitehead, I think, knows his way around. I I did read The Underground Railway. It's worked out as intricately as any fantasy or science fiction novelist would have worked it out had they started with that conceit. He'd already written a a zombie novel. Um, So this is... we're, We're getting a generation of mainstream writers who appreciate and understand what the traditions of science fiction and fantasy are, I think. There's a, they aren't the entire generation. There's another group of people uh, in 
this sort of new literary generation, Eden Lepucky, California, is one that comes to mind, who don't seem to know anything about the field and seem a little bit taken aback when somebody points out this looks like science fiction to us. But by and large, I think we're past the point where new literary writers uh, feel contentious toward using science fiction ideas. I think um, my guess is that my guess, without knowing anything, without having read any interviews with them. My guess is that Colts and Whitehead probably didn't mind um, Underground Railway being reviewed in Locus. For example. Oh, I'm sure. No, I'm sure. And, I mean, it's going to be interesting, and I mean, probably to segue onto the latter part of what we're going to talk about, and it does link up. You, of course, are going to, as you said, are going to attend this, so you may have a chance to talk to some of these people for us. I hope so. I hope we can actually get some recordings done out there. I don't know who's going to show up. Uh, one of the things you never know at awards. If it's not a world con or a world fantasy, you never know who's going to show up for them. Hmm. Um, because you always have this thing, and I've never been in the wards. Actually, I am an award wards administrator, so never mind. Forget that. There's this business where you call somebody up and say you're nominated for this award, and would you come to the conference? And Charles Brown did this to me. I was nominated for a Locus Award one year. And I wasn't going to go because it's an expensive trip from Chicago to Seattle. So Charles said, you'll get a nice surprise if you come. And he finally persuaded me, I'd better fly out to Seattle. I think I'm going to win a Locus Award. And I didn't. <laughs> he's such a you bugger. You know where this is going, yeah. don't you? You know, he's, this is a Charles Brown story. And, of course, I lost. And Charles said, well, that was a surprise. <laughs> <laughs> what a bugger, really. Um <laughs> Yeah, I mean, obviously they know who's won this thing, but it'll be interesting to see what happens at that weekend. Uh, <laughs> the thing I was going to say... Yeah, sorry, yeah. We should, we should mention that the Sturgeon Awards are also given out that weekend. They are. For short, with a different set of judges. And the Sturgeon Awards, unlike the, um, the Campbell Awards, are very much in line with the Hugo and Nebula nominees this year. They're very familiar stories. The Art of Space Travel by Nina Allen... Amal Al-Mortar's The Seasons of Glass and Iron, Carolyn Ives Gilman, Touring with the Alien, Victor Laval, The Ballad of Black Tom. All those are Hugo nominees, uh, as is Catherine Valenti's The Future is Blue, which, again, you brought into print. You actually have a pretty good uh, set of... Um, you're pretty well represented on these ballads. Uh, and Kaya Shanti Wilson's A Taste of Honey, who, which we've talked about with him on the podcast... All those are Hugo nominees, and Ian McLeod's A Visitor from Tarad, Sam Miller's Things with Beards, and, again, A Taste of Honey, are all Nebula nominees. So it seems to me that Sturgeon Awards are much more in line with the other awards than the Campbell Award nominees seem to be. But then are you aware that they have a nominating pool that feed in recommendations that the jury looks at and takes into account? And all of the year's best editors are on that uh, feed-in recommendations. In other words, it's the fixes in is what you're telling me. No, that's you're not what I tell you. No, that's that, that, no, that's not what I'm trying to tell you. What I'm trying to tell you is that it's the same group of people are are shaping it. Maybe I suppose. Nonetheless, nonetheless. I didn't. I didn't. I didn't cross compare these with the locust recommended list. But I'm guessing they're all on it. 
pretty much. And in fact, I think for the, I mean, not, not to add an advertisement into this non-commercial podcast, Gary, but if you wanted to pick up on your Sturgeon Memorial Award, your Sturgeon Award, uh, reading, one of the best possible things you could do would be to get the best science fiction and fantasy of the year, volume 11 from Jonathan Strand, which has most of them in it. This is completely corrupt. You, 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 you bribe the other judges to celebrate sure here's best anthology. I'm going to go back now. I'm going to look at Rich Horton's table of contents. I'm going to, I'm going to see if everybody else did the same thing you did. But, but my, my other question is, because science fiction short fiction is so overwhelming to most readers, and I'm, I'm speaking as somebody who reads as little short fiction as you do novels until the year's best comes up. So – we, did, we tend to depend on you and Rich and Gardner and Paula and all the people and, 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 and Neil who do the year's best anthologies for short fiction. And therefore, that's where we get our sense of the short fiction shape of the genre. Whereas in terms of novels, if you have a group of opinionated judges, such as the one we mentioned, mentioned for the um, Campbell Award, you're going to get a list that doesn't reflect any editors or sets of editors' predilections. Yeah, pretty much. Which is okay. I mean, one of the things I like about the Campbell list is that it doesn't look like the Hugo or Nebula list. No, I mean, look, there are all kinds of uh, – well, there, there are so many awards now that, of course, looking collectively is what's interesting now. I mean, the individual award seems to me less interesting than the overall group of awards and, and what sort of scores well amongst them. So, you know, if I- it, yeah, so when you take the Nebula novel ballot and the Hugo novel mm. ballot and the, the Campbell and the uh, World Fantasy and the BSFA and the BFA yeah. and the Aurora and the whatever else, and then you come down and say, well, what's actually score? What, what's coming up most often? That yeah. little sort of cohort of books are, the, are some of the most interesting of the year. Hopefully, I think that's true, and I, I, I think that by and large, uh, somebody looking for a list of books to read that they haven't read. I mean, these people who wait to read science fiction until it gets nominated for an award, probably between the Nebula and the Locus and the Campbell and the Hugo nominations, could get a pretty good reading list together. Yes, it's true. It's true. Let us segue now into our final little thing, because we're over our hour by some little way, which is good, because I wasn't sure we had anything at all to talk about. You wanted to to expose the, the... uh, the, the, ba- the the rear side of the Coot Street podcast to our listeners so they could better understand what we're on about. Well, we explained this to listeners probably five years ago or something, and some people may be listening to us who aren't aware of the fact that one of the reasons we have lacunae, we have periods of deserts when there are no podcasts, <laughs> is because we are recording this as we are right now at this particular moment, which happens to be uh, a Sunday evening in Chicago and a Monday morning in in Perth. And this is only because you don't have to be at work today because of some bizarre Australian holiday. Um, (laughs) Normally, the only two nights when we can record will be in North America, Friday or Saturday night, which in Australia, in Perth, is Saturday or Sunday morning. That's right. Which means there are two times, except for you know, bizarre Australian holidays or bizarre American holidays. There are only two nights a week that I can record or two mornings a week when you can record. And sometimes there are things like, I don't know, kids who want to have a birthday party, <laughs> uh, graduation ceremonies, things that 
that are called life that interfere with that. So occasionally, as last week, for example, we simply ran into scheduling. scheduling. Yeah. Exactly. Um, and we don't record a bunch of these at once. We're not in the same room together when we do this. And as a footnote to this, occasionally we will have guests from the United Kingdom, as we did recently with Ken McLeod and Paul Kincaid. Uh, who's, by the way, I, I received my copies of Paul Kincaid's Ian Banks book today from the University of Illinois Press. If you can plug your year's best anthology, I can plug the Modern Masters of Science Fiction series from the University of Illinois Press. I'll go further, Gary. I'll plug it. It's my pick for the Hugo for best, refer- best related work next year. I hope so. Um, there are a, a couple of other possibilities that are coming out. We've got a book on Ballard coming out. I don't care. Okay, but but Paul's book is Banks really book. well. Buy the Banks book, vote for the Hugo, don't muck around. And, and it, absolutely. But that complicates our timing even more because 2 p.m. in the U.K. is 8 a.m. for me and 9 p.m. for Jonathan. So when we're talking to somebody from Europe or from the United Kingdom, which is most likely what we're going to be doing, we have like a one-hour window on a weekend when we can talk to those people when everybody's awake. You know what occurs to me? Have we completely messed up our live recording for Helsinki? Because we're going to go to Europe and talk to Americans. Well, and a Canadian. An American and a Canadian. <laughs> we'll talk about that. There are, there, are, uh, there are a couple of Swedish and Finnish writers I would love to talk to if we can... Oh, we'll do that. Uh, I mean, we'll definitely do that. We will do that. But, I mean, for the live podcast, I mean, mean, you know, we have set up talking to a North American writer with a Canadian writer as well. Okay, we've done done something irresponsible and indefensible. Anyway, anyway. (laughs) to to come back, you're right. The the, the timing is strange. Both family and other things come in. And the other thing which has happened throughout the life of the podcast, which now goes back seven years or some horrific Mm -hmm. thing is that you go on the road far more than I and sometimes we record when you're on the road and sometimes we don't vagaries Mm -hmm. of timing vagaries of convention schedules vagaries of Wi-Fi right hotel Wi-Fi may be reliable may not be reliable and also then you know just because you're I mean if as a listener to the podcast you've ever been to a science fiction convention you'll know when you're running around with your your parent your friends you don't necessarily want to look at that bar full of people and go no instead I'm going to go sit in someone's hotel room and record a podcast and then the third variable and a couple of years we've been good about this we were really good in Saratoga last time but sometimes mm-hmm. we go we're going to go to the convention we're going to record the podcasts we're going to be super efficient and then we don't do that as you say, anybody who's been to a convention realizes your pals are in the bar. This person can only have dinner on Thursday night instead of on Saturday night. Um, and, uh, and and to some extent, you are trying to persuade people who sometimes have no particular reason to be on the podcast. And one of the, one of the other secrets of this or any other podcast, if someone has a book they want to promote, they're more likely to say, I'd like to be on the podcast uh, than somebody – who just says, oh, okay. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's true. And, of course, if it turns out that you're going to Helsinki and you go there, say, three days before the event, but nobody else shows up until the day of the event, you can't record before the event. No, you could record random Helsinki citizens, I suppose. That's Which true. I've often thought about. It's, it's, it's a podcast. It's something we ought to talk about at some point. 
maybe not on the podcast. Uh, when you talk about the awareness of uh, science fiction in the general public, that's a separate topic altogether because I've I've been out and about here in Chicago with various writers, and only twice has have any of them been recognized. And one of those was Charles Brown. It was not somebody yeah. you would expect to be recognized on the street. Um, when I was in not Helsinki but Olan, this uh, Mariham, another town in Finland, a couple of years ago, and George R. R. Martin was the guest. Every aging American with a beard got mistaken for George R. R. Martin. That was kind of cool, actually, because <laughs> there are only a handful of us. Uh, I was just going to say, I'm going to tell people now the likely times we're going to be disappearing from their podcast feeds. Uh, we will be around through most of June and July. However, the last week of June will be a quiet weekend for us. You'll be busy with uh, family commitments. And so there'll be no podcast at that point. Uh, there, there are two events when you're traveling, going to the Campbell Conference, as you mentioned, where you may get some podcasting in, you may not. And similarly, the weekend you go to ReaderCon in mid-July. That all, that also may be a lucky, wonderful time, or it may be a time when we don't get to record. We don't know. And then from the end of July, we're kind of sort of on hiatus. I'm, I'm at a writer's retreat uh, the last weekend of July with some friends of mine, and it's possible something might come out of that, but that would be a side issue kind of a thing. And then all through August, you and I are traveling, right? Right up to the last weekend of August, we're in Europe one way or the other. So at least three weeks or so, we will be off air in August. Now, to compensate, we will record a whole bunch of really great podcasts, we hope. Then we shall return and we shall remain on the air at least till the end of November. And then... Probably through December and into January, we will disappear for about six weeks. And that's when hopefully the podcasts are stacked up in at Worldcon will see us through. But if not, there may be a, a hiatus there. And then we'll return afresh in 2018. And the reason for that Christmas hiatus isn't just because we're exceptionally seasonally minded, is it, Gary? It's not because we've got a taste for the eggnog, though perhaps, well, no, we don't. But, you know, it's that that's the... Go ahead and finish your sentence. It, it, it's because it's the worst time of the year for for scheduling and conflicts for work, right? For you, maybe. I'm retired. I haven't mentioned this on the podcast yet, but I don't have... <laughs> I, uh, at the end of August, my contract at the university ends. Uh, I'm looking forward to a holiday <laughs> when, when I can just podcast with anybody I wanted to. I, I, you have You have a job now. I don't. But well, hang on. But well, we do have recommended reading. Mm -hmm. That takes up a ton of time. Okay, I should. You're right. You have enormous of responsibilities with recommended reading, putting together your year's best, and your actual day job. Yes, all coming together. I, on the other hand, am going to be drinking that eggnog that you can't have. I am going to become part of the unlanded gentry. I am going to sit around. Hoping it snows on Christmas, which it never does where you are, by the way. No, it never does. It'll be 42 degrees at Christmas, which is fine. That's what you expect. But, uh, yes, you're right. The, the reason for the hiatus is I've, in fact, I've brought the, the year's best back. I now have to deliver it before Christmas by the 20th of December. Um, and I will be up to my ears probably in my 
commitments to producing the Locus recommended reading list for short fiction and in helping, to, you know, with all that kind of stuff. So, yeah, it's an insanely busy time. And as you say, quite rightly, also with actual familial responsibilities and having Christmas. So, yeah, it's going to be, it's gonna be mad. Absolutely. And th- and that's why we just the, I I at least have to get that weekend that work into a weekend, and that means no podcast. It must be terrible to have responsibilities. I, I shut up. I hate you. Oh, okay. Shut up. 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 The one other thing we should say, since you're saying some people have mentioned this to you, if you are, if you or someone you love can't find the Cood Street podcast, this is how you find the Cood Street podcast. You go to Podbean, to jonathanstrand.podbean.com, and you'll find it there. There are links and whatever else to subscribe to it. If you go to iTunes, search for the Cood Street podcast. There is an old, out-of-date feed there, just called Cood Street, and that does not have all of the episodes in it. However, the Cood Street podcast feed actually does, and I will push out a fresh link to the, uh, the, the the correct subscription through iTunes with this episode when it goes out. And anybody who father, follows either Jonathan or myself on Twitter or Facebook can simply find the announcement of the podcast that week. Yes, that's true. It's, it's promoted on Facebook, even though I'm not on Facebook right now, and is on Twitter and other social mediums. I'm not going to correct you the way I would one of my students. Good man. <laughs> and on that no, 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 you brought it up now and this is something that everybody who teaches literature or writing has written on papers for 20 years now media is plural I know that Gary I know you know that <laughs> and all of our listeners know it all of them mediums people if you have a group of people in a room who can read minds that's a group of mediums if you're talking about different media of communication media. Gary, we live in an age where people refer to uh, 33 and a third RPM records as vinyls. Which is also misleading because 45s are also on vinyl. And, uh, but also then we don't refer to compact discs as, as polyurethanes, do we? No. We don't refer... It, 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 we don't call them by the stuff they're made of. Anyway, enough of that. Okay. We are clearly at the end of it. We've had an hour and 20 minutes of this stuff. These people are despairing. Hold, hold, hold this. Hold this thought for a future podcast. Yes. Because the treatment of language in science fiction or the idea of trying to project future language is something science fiction does really badly. Really does. Nobody back in the 60s or 70s thought that vinyls would refer to what we then called records. Nobody would have gone through the sequence of imaginary leaps it takes to come up with a word like app. It's true. It's true. They never would have. That's why science fiction will be dated. And on that cheery note, until I talk to you next, we'll have to remain the Cood Street Podcast. We will be the Cood Street? Whatever, the Street Cood... um, That thing, next week. Next week, next week. week. Bye. I know a secret I should tell you now.